Hey all, and a warm welcome to this week's episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that focuses upon the obscure, the unfamiliar and often forgotten cases from the shores of the UK. I'm Paul, your host and the True Crime Enthusiast of the title, and as always, I begin by thanking you guys so much for joining me here and listening in. Your continued support and appreciation means the world and helps make bringing out the show possible each week. So I'm always forever grateful. Just always like to put that out at the start. I was absolutely chuffed to bits with the response from the previous trilogy of episodes, the one-legged train spotter that featured the crimes of Michael Sams. The feedback from you guys has been absolutely brilliant about it and I'm so glad that it was understood why a multi-part episode concerning the case was much better than trying to cram it into one that would end up being longer than Gone With The Wind, because who wants to sit still that much? And imagine recording and editing that. Uh, no thanks, that's much too daunting. By breaking a complex case such as the Sam's one down into a trilogy, I think you get a better focus on each aspect and you can always add more detail. I love detail. It always makes an episode of any podcast for me and so that's what I always try to put into my own episodes. So the reviews and comments concerning the case have been very kind, and so thanks very much for that, guys. Also, thanks very much to my latest Patreon supporters, that's Karis Callan, Jesse, and a name I recognise from my past, Richard Kilpatrick. Thanks very much, guys. Hope you enjoy the bonus content episodes. Yeah, so by the time this episode has dropped, there will be five bonus episodes up there because I release on the first day of the month, as ever. So I hope you enjoy them. It's promo time now. And this week I have the promo for the podcast that added the word Boom Fuckalunga to the Urban Dictionary. That's Cambo Ford's very own True Crime Island. It's a podcast I always enjoy because I love to hear a rant. Who doesn't? But especially when it's one concerning a well-researched, interesting case from down under. I know next to nothing about crime in Australia. So I regularly tune into this one and a few of the other great ones from down that neck of the woods to find out about these cases that I don't know anything about. I have mentioned it before on the show, but it's over to Cambo himself now, so grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. Do you get mad when listening to true crime? Well, so do I. If you want a weekly true crime podcast that says what you're thinking, then grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is Cambo from True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, and maintain the rage with me. Visit truecrimeisland.com where you can download or stream each episode, plus there's links to iTunes and social media. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. This is True Crime Island. Sounds pretty good, eh? Make sure, if you haven't already, then you reserve yourself a deck chair and an endless supply of beer. Thanks very much for that, Cambo. So for this week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I've opted to recap some unsolved cases as it's been a while since we have on the show. Last series, in fact. Well, apart from the crossover episode with outlines that we did a few weeks ago. Plus, I've happened to have been so busy with researching and writing the Sam's trilogy. Plus an epic couple of nights watching my favourite ever band, The Charlatans, coming home at the North by Northwich Festival, and real life to boot, work, everything on top of that. Researching in depth a fresh case from scratch has been a bit beyond my grasp of late. So, I've chosen a trilogy of unsolved cases 
that I have covered before as written posts on the True Crime Enthusiast WordPress blog. There are cases that I'd planned on getting around to covering on the podcast at some point though, so here that point is. The three cases are all unsolved crimes from the files of Avon and Somerset Police that took place many years ago, two in the city of Bristol and one in the city of Bath. They're all despicable crimes, that just goes without saying, and it's doubtful that the names of each victim will be familiar, as they're cases that have not entered the public consciousness like some other cases have. But as always, no one is forgotten here on the show, and so each case is a worthwhile one to highlight. Each case has left devastated loved ones and family members in its wake, and those surviving today deserve some acknowledgement that their loved ones haven't been forgotten. As with previous unsolved cases that are featured on the show, I recount what's known about the case and then I offer my own opinions and hypothesis about the killer based upon what is known. Listeners should be advised that this week's episode does contain descriptions of crimes that may distress, but as always, it's necessary to bring home just how horrific these crimes are. And as highlighted with recent events, keeping these names in the public mind may just help. So with that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back at some cases of Bristol and Bath's unsolved murders. It is now almost 33 years since a kindly pensioner, a mother of three and a grandmother, was found horrifically murdered in her own home, a basement flat in the Ashley Road, Bristol's St Paul's district. The victim was a 62-year-old named Violet Milsom, who was found savagely murdered by a family friend who had called earlier at a flat in the morning to do some gardening for her. What was discovered that day was a scene of horror that shook detectives to the core and still leaves police baffled more than 30 years later. Sometime between the evening of the 30th of September and the 1st of October 1985, a twisted killer had forced his way into Violet's basement flat in Ashley Road had sexually assaulted her, strangled her with her own clothing, and left her body in a partially clothed state, horrifically mutilated with what was determined to have been a sharp knife with a five-inch blade, possibly an extendable Stanley knife. Now the exact details of Violet's injuries have never been publicly revealed, as police have determined them too disturbing to publish. What they will say is that the injuries were savage. Also used to restrain Violet was a pink flannel dressing gown belt, which had been used to tie her wrists together before she was killed. Importantly, this belt did not seem to match any clothing that was found in the flat, and it did not belong to Violet. Police believed that the killer had brought this item with him, with the specific intent of using it as a restraint, yet it was left there, and one of the binds on her wrist had been severed. The resulting police investigation consisted of an 80-strong team of detectives from Avon and Somerset Police, who undertook a massive inquiry and began to build up a picture of Violet's life and background. It was hoped that in this, some clue would be found that may help identify a motive for her murder, and this may in turn lead ultimately to her killer. What was discovered after these inquiries was nothing more than a picture of a loving, kind mother of three and grandmother that there was no apparent reason whatsoever to wish any harm to, let alone inflict such a horrific murder upon. Violet had been divorced from her ex-husband James for 14 years before her death, and according to her family, 
she'd had no subsequent romantic relationship since this. She'd not worked for several years before her death, and her previous employment had been working in a chicken bar in the St. Paul's area. She'd lived alone with her two cats, Tiny and Ginger, in her basement flat for the three years before her death, but was on good terms with her neighbours and was known throughout the local area, visiting the local grocery store opposite her flat twice daily for newspapers. She was known as a lady with a charitable nature who would welcome any caller to her door and would regularly give money to homeless people that she came across. However, living alone, Violet was security conscious and would habitually take a sleeping pill each night at about 7 o'clock, after which she would not answer the door to any callers. She'd even drawn up a handwritten sign on a piece of cardboard and placed it in her window, stating, No answer after 6 o'clock to anyone, thank you. On the night Violet died, this cardboard sign went missing from the flat. I mean, did her killer see this sign and this acted as an invite to him? because it suggested a person living alone. Inquiries determined that Violet was last seen alive at 4pm on the afternoon of 30th of September, where she had as usual collected her evening papers. That day she'd also drawn out the full amount of her £37 weekly pension money from St Paul's Lower Ashley Road Post Office, and had gone out to do some shopping. What happened between her returning home from shopping and being discovered murdered the next morning has remained a mystery, as detectives have always had few clues to go on. All of Violet's pension money was missing, and the flat had been ransacked, but a small amount of cash was found in another purse in the flat. It was this discovery that led police to believe that robbery was only a secondary motive. They believed that the primary motive was sexual. The police officer leading the hunt for Violet's killer Detective Chief Inspector Malcolm Hughes was quoted as saying, We may be looking for a man who is a thief as well as a sexual pervert. What he did to Mrs. Milsom was done deliberately and not in the heat of the moment. After fruitless months of investigating many potential leads, detectives were at a standstill and it was ultimately decided by the investigating officers that an approach to the TV series Crime Watch UK may perhaps be the best course of action. I'm not even going to say anything here, because I don't really think I need to. A TV reconstruction would reenact the last few days of Violet's life in an appeal to the wider public for information. Now I remember watching the reconstruction even so long ago now, 30 years plus. Violet's name in her tragic case was always one of those that stayed in my mind hence the research and chronicling the case as part of the unsolved crimes for this podcast episode. But frustratingly, this is another case that widespread detailing of is unavailable, and as I've said many times before here on the show, I believe strongly that Violet deserves some recognition and remembrance, and the acknowledgement that her killer has still to this day escaped justice. So the Crime Watch UK reconstruction focused on several points as it faithfully and accurately as possible recreated the picture of Violet's last few days. Firstly, Violet had spoken to several of her neighbours about an attempted burglary at her flat one evening just a few weeks before her death. She'd been relaxing at home late in the evening when the sound of smashing glass had roused her. Going to the front door, Violet had disturbed three youths who had smashed the glass in her door window, and then who ran away when she challenged them. 
police had been made aware of the attempted break-in at the time, and the attempt was reconstructed in the Crime Watch UK film. Coincidentally, a description of three youths who were seen outside a flat on the night of the murder was also given. Was this the same three youths that Violet had scared away that night? Three other people also featured in the reconstruction that police considered persons of interest to the investigation. Firstly, a few days before she was found dead, Violet had been sighted talking with a young man outside a furniture store in nearby Stokes Croft. Secondly, a man was seen coming out of a gate in the location of Violet's flat on Ashley Road at about midnight on the night Violet was murdered, although the witness who saw the man could not be sure if it was Violet's gate or not that he'd come out of. He was described as white, slim, having unkempt collar-length brown hair, aged in his early twenties, wearing light denim jeans and a light woolen sweater. Lastly, a young man was seen in Ashley Road the same night, crouching and banging his head against a nearby garden wall. Now this man was described as visibly upset, and was heard to be crying, Oh no! and was then seen to collapse into a crouching position and begin to sob. None of these men have ever come forward following the appeal, and they've never subsequently been traced either. Both the sobbing man and the man spotted with Violet outside the furniture store were similar in description to the man spotted coming out of the gate. Could it be possible that all three sightings were of the same man? And if so, who was he? Also highlighted in the reconstruction was another puzzle. An old Christmas card had been found in Violet's flat. It had been sent in either 1976 or 1977, and had contained the following short handwritten message. To Violet, for my sweetheart at Christmas, Steve. The author of the mystery card was another person who was never identified. Curiously, Violet's name had been misspelt, and it had missed the O out of her name. The card was obviously important enough for Violet to have kept for a number of years, and it's worded as a very personal card to send. But Violet's family had been unaware of any relationships that she'd had since her divorce from her ex-husband James in 1971, and a person named Steve or Stephen was never identified or traced. Who was the mystery Steve? It was yet another question. So what then can be said about Violet's killer? To recap, it must be stressed that the following to be recounted is opinion-based on what is known about the crime. It's not definitive, and it can be as best classed as an educated guess on my behalf. So as police have classed the motive for Violet's murder as a primarily sex crime, I believe that the person responsible will be or will have been known to police. A person does not sexually assault, strangle and mutilate an elderly woman as a first offence. This is a crime that's built up to, and this man will have offended before, of a sexual nature as well as other crimes such as vandalism and theft. Proceeding murder, this may but will not definitely include rape or attempted sexual assault, and is almost likely to be a person with a fetish. He will likely be known to police or healthcare professionals due to the offences he has committed, it being likely that he's served time in prison or hospital or been cautioned or fined for these offences. This is emphasised by some level of organisation to the murder that can be gleaned from the scant details available about the case. 
a restraint was brought to the scene, along with a knife which was then taken away. An organised killer will plan his crime, and in his actions here, he's shown at least some level of being forensically aware, and having organisation. He left no DNA or fingerprints at the scene, he managed to access and egress the scene without drawing undue attention to himself, and he came and left prepared to restrain and to kill. Yet the killer left the restraint at the scene. A picture of the dressing gown belt used to restrain Violet does exist, and the knots used seem to be quite intricate. There were also reports that one of the binds around her wrist was severed. Why was this? It's likely that if this person is still alive, he will have perhaps killed again. To build up to a crime of this magnitude and then never again repeat it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. He will have needed to repeat the experience to recapture the euphoria that he's gained from killing Violet, which will have faded and plateaued as times passed. So how does he recapture it? Well, he goes out and kills again. It's possible that the killer suffers from a form of mental or personality disorder. Indeed, he may be a seriously disturbed sexual offender. I don't think there's any may about that, really. He is. This was the opinion of investigating officers at the time, and it remains so to this day. The level of violence aimed at Violet was horrendous, and completely unnecessary towards an elderly lady who was no physical threat, and this suggests a person who was not capable of restraint or rational thought. If this is accurate then it makes it more likely that this person's name will be in the files of police or healthcare professionals somewhere. If the killer was one of the people appealed for in the Crime Watch UK reconstruction, he'd now be between 45 to 60 years old. It's important, however, not to rely too much on any physical description. After a passage of nearly 33 years, people change drastically in looks, build and appearance there is the possibility that the killer may now be serving time in prison for an unrelated offence. He may be hospitalised due to a physical or mental debilitating illness, he may have left the country, or he may even now be dead. Or if he is still alive, he may still be walking the streets offending now. It's likely that the killer would be familiar with the Ashley Road, St Paul's area of Bristol. It's quite an urban road, it's quite built up, and there were a lot of, I don't know what it's like today, but there were a lot of flats and bedsits in close proximity. It was a very busy street, and if you didn't know the place, it's not somewhere that you would just target at random, I don't believe. Perhaps he lived or worked in the area at some time, or perhaps he'd gone to school there. Perhaps he still lives there now. It's possible also that the killer knew Violet in some way, or at least knew that the flat that she lived in was occupied by an elderly lady who lived alone. Had he watched her? This idea seems likely. I mean, what would be the chances of a killer picking a property at random to break into, finding a victim that he'd come perfectly prepared to restrain and kill? An elderly lady. Far too high. And also, why was the note from the window taken? It was never found at the scene. It's possible that the killer had touched it in some way, perhaps even taken it as a trophy. As I say, it's never been found. So just to recap, nearly 33 years have almost passed now, and although the investigation is regularly reviewed, no further progress has been to this date made in bringing Violet's killer to justice. 
police have never officially linked the murder of Violet Milsom to any other unsolved murders, either in the Avon and Somerset area or nationwide. There are, however, several killers serving whole life tariffs in British prisons, and I believe there is at least a possibility that one of these may be responsible for Violet's murder. But with the lack of definitive evidence proving this is the case, detectives have hit a brick wall with the investigation and it remains as much of a mystery now as it did on the morning that Violet's body was discovered. And Violet's remaining family still live with the knowledge that the killer of their matriarch has never to this day faced justice. The words of Detective Chief Inspector Malcolm Hughes perhaps echo this well, just how much of a pressing need there is for this man to be caught and brought to justice. Someone in the area must have heard something. I cannot believe that no one knows anything. The whole family is shattered by this. She was well liked by every one of her neighbours and would always welcome anyone who called at her door. The person who did it must be really sick. Sick indeed, eh? Just three miles away from the Ashley Road area is the Bristol suburb of Snide Park which originates from the Victorian age and still to this day contains many Edwardian and Victorian villas lining its edges. For many years it's been considered a very affluent area and is home to many wealthy people who enjoy the quiet upmarket community. In the 1970s the area was vastly different. Many of these properties made up student accommodation and bedsits for students and young working professionals and back in 1976 the community was rocked by a horrific murder that remains unsolved to this day. However, due to advances in forensic science, today Avon and Somerset police are a crucial step closer in bringing the killer to justice. The summer of 1976 was the hottest summer since records began and is so embedded in the national psyche that it's still regularly used as a benchmark for comparison whenever the United Kingdom has any subsequent heat waves which is practically never. In 1976, the film-going world had just been introduced to Rocky. Jimmy Carter had had the presidential nod for the Democratic Party. The son of Sam committed his first murder, and the host wasn't even a twinkle in his dad's eye. But for the family of 44-year-old nurse Susan Donoghue, 1976 is remembered for a different, more tragic reason altogether. That year, a mother, sister and fiancé was taken from them when Susan was brutally murdered in her own home, in her own bed. Susan was one of 13 children, there was obviously no TVs in them days, and had been born in 1932 in the Fintona area of County Tyrone in Ireland. She'd grown up with her family in the town of Lisnacreve and had attended the Loretto Grammar School in Omar, where her ambition throughout her school days had been to work in nursing. She had trained and qualified as a nurse in Belfast and had worked there for a period before moving to the UK mainland and working in a hospital in the Kent area. She eventually married a man with the amazing name of Cornelius Donoghue in the 1950s and the couple moved to the Channel Islands, settling in Jersey. The marriage produced a son, John, in 1958, but it ultimately wasn't a happy marriage and it broke down in the mid-1960s. Susan then relocated to Bristol, where three of her brothers lived, and found employment as a night sister in the psychiatric hospital Brentry in North Bristol, and met a new man that she began seeing. Slightly older than Susan, 
Dennis Foote was a carpenter who worked at the same hospital as she did, teaching carpentry to some of the patients. He was immediately attracted to the five-foot-two, well-built, dark-haired nurse with a soft Irish twang, and with their combined interest in hospital work, they became friends and soon afterwards became a couple. By all accounts, the couple were very, very happy, as at the time of Susan's death, they were engaged and hoping to marry at around Christmas 1976. They did not yet live together, with Dennis sharing a home with his younger brother and Susan having a ground-floor bedsit flat in the Downleys area of Snide Park. At the time, Downleys was a residential street heavily populated with bedsits, and the occupants tended to be transient and ever-changing. Dennis was at the time renovating his house ready for him and Susan to live in as a couple, and his younger brother had recently moved out to pave way for the couple living together. Happy times all round. So by all accounts, the night of the 4th and the 5th of August 1976 should have been a normal night for Susan. She should have been on a night shift at Brentry Hospital that evening, but she wasn't feeling too well, so she telephoned the hospital to tell them that she wouldn't be going in that evening, and a friend of hers had come round to visit her. Suffering with a heavy cold, Susan had seen her friend off at about 12.15am and had then settled down trying to sleep her cold off in the hot August evening. When Dennis arrived for work at Brentry Hospital early on the morning of the 5th of August, he was told that Susan had not made it into work the night before as she was ill. Remember, this is long before the days of everyone having a mobile phone and being able to text message or Facebook or anything like that. Not even everybody had a telephone in their house at the time. So, as Dennis hadn't heard from Susan, he decided to go around to her flat to make sure she was okay. What Dennis discovered when he arrived there at 7.15am that morning led to him having to be heavily sedated that day and left his life in ruins. Dennis let himself into Susan's ground floor flat using his own key and discovered Susan's body lying in a bed in the bedroom slash sitting room. She was clearly dead and had been brutally battered to death with the killer inflicting severe head injuries upon her. The bed, furniture and room were all heavily bloodstained. Shaken and distraught, Dennis immediately summoned police. A team of detectives, led by Detective Superintendent John Robinson of Avon and Somerset Police, arrived to set up an incident room and launched immediate house-to-house inquiries in the locality of Susan's flat. Dennis, the obvious suspect, was arrested as a matter of routine, but was rapidly ruled out as a suspect when he was found to have a cast-iron alibi. Surmising that Susan's killer must have been heavily bloodstained due to the frenzied attack, a team of police searched the area surrounding the house and nearby streets and gardens for any bloodstained clothing that the killer may have dumped whilst fleeing from the scene, but nothing was found. Meanwhile, Home Office pathologist Dr Bill Kennard was summoned from Salisbury to examine the body in situ. Scenes of crime officers worked around him photographing the scene and examining surfaces for any forensic evidence that may have been left by Susan's killer. From the initial appearance of the scene of the crime, it appeared that Susan had been attacked as she slept, and that the killer had battered her to death with a heavy blunt instrument. There was evidence of the room having been ransacked, although it was unclear exactly what, if anything, had been taken. A blood-stained Bristol Docks police truncheon was found at the scene, and this was later confirmed to have been the murder weapon and also found at the scene were a heavily blood-stained pair of man's driving gloves 
placed on the arm of the settee, there was a tobacco box and a footprint on the inside window sill of the adjacent room to where Susan was found. The window in this room was found to be half open. I mean, understandable is it was a heat wave after all. Forensic examination of the items found at the scene later confirmed suspicions that the blood covering them had come from Susan, and a later post-mortem also concluded that Susan had been sexually assaulted either before or after the attack, as swabs taken from her revealed the presence of semen. The post-mortem also determined that Susan's killer had struck her over the head with the truncheon at least seven times, causing massive and catastrophic head wounds. Now, I don't know if anybody listening has been hit with a truncheon ever, okay? But I did a training for it when I was in the forces many years ago. And if you get hit once with it, you know about it. So I can only imagine just how catastrophic seven times must be. It must be absolutely awful. So whilst house-to-house inquiries got underway, Susan's colleagues and friends and family were spoken to at the same time to build up a picture of Susan's life. Everyone that knew her, her neighbours who lived in the houses and bedsits that made up Downleys, even the patients and staff in Brentree Hospital where she worked were spoken to to try to paint this picture of Susan. Had she any enemies or was she involved in anything untoward or illicit? Ultimately, nothing was found to suggest any of these possibilities. It transpired that Susan was a quiet woman who seemed to keep her personal life quite private and to not socialise too much with her work colleagues. But the overall impression from talking to people who knew it was that she was well-liked and very popular with her colleagues. One of these, John Camilleri, paid tribute to her in an interview with the Bristol Evening Post the day after Susan was murdered, saying, She was a jolly sort of person who always had a big smile on her face. Susan worked on the opposite shift to me. She never pushed herself to the front of things, but was one of the girls, definitely. We are all very sad at her death. It was the only talking point in the hospital last night, especially among those who worked with her on her last shift on Tuesday. The house-to-house inquiries revealed very little. No one in the area had heard any screams or sounds of a struggle that evening, and no one had been seen entering or leaving the vicinity of Susan's flat in the early hours. In fact, only one witness was found who seemed to have heard anything out of the ordinary, and that witness happened to be a three-year-old black spaniel dog called Jet. Jet's owner, Gareth Jones, lived in a flat opposite the house where Susan was murdered, and in the early hours of the 5th of August, Jet had woken his owners with his yapping and crying. Because this was so out of the norm for the dog, Mr Jones got up and took Jet out on his lead, thinking that he needed to go out. Instead, Jet headed straight for the vicinity of Susan's flat. The dog was extremely agitated and would not settle for some time afterwards. So had the dog heard something? The items recovered from the scene that had been left by the killer also yielded no results. No forensic evidence from the killer could be gleaned from any of them, and the origin of the tobacco tin and the gloves could not be traced. The gloves were old and grubby and were of the old driving type that were string-backed with pigskin palms and cuffs. The police truncheon, inscribed Bristol Docks, also yielded no clues. Now it's a brutal weapon to use, a truncheon like that, and it's also something that's it's not easily accessible. I mean, a piece of wood is accessible, but a truncheon, specifically inscribed Bristol Docks, it, you'd think you'd be able to trace that, but despite detectives making many inquiries to its origins, 
what would seem a promising lead like that ultimately led nowhere. The origin and the owner could not be traced at all. For more than 12 months, 80 detectives investigated many possible leads and undertook countless inquiries, but to no avail. Several men were arrested over the course of the inquiry, but all were released without charge and later eliminated completely from the investigation. A total of 4,000 statements were taken and 7,000 people were interviewed, but these ultimately led to nothing. Several people who had been seen in the area around the crucial time were unable to be traced and have never come forward, including a slim-built man who was seen pushing a bike along nearby Julian Road at about 12.30am, a motorcyclist wearing a white helmet who passed by at around the same time, and a mysterious man in dark glasses who was seen near the local church at the time of Susan's funeral. Two months later, another man, possibly the same person, was seen examining wreath and flower inscriptions at Susan's grave. Who was he? Detectives had exhausted every line of inquiry they had available to them. All petty housebreakers and sex offenders that were known to Avon and Somerset police were tracked down, questioned and ultimately cleared. The police truncheon had proved a fruitless lead, as did the commonplace driving gloves left behind at the crime scene. The tobacco tin also led to a dead end, as did the footprint left on the windowsill. When all these lines of inquiry had been exhausted, and as time progressed, the manpower investigating Susan's murder was scaled down, as other crimes that required investigating caught up. Sadly, crime doesn't stand still, does it? It must have been so frustrating for the police on the inquiry to have a murder weapon, very distinctively inscribed murder weapon, to have the killer's semen, to have the gloves that he wore, and evidence that he'd left behind and yet to not have a single suspect or description even of the killer. With no new information forthcoming, the inquiry wound down and remained inactive for many years. But in the years following Susan's murder though, forensic science advanced greatly, culminating in the discovery in 1984 of DNA profiling to be able to identify killers, and in 1995 Susan's murder was reviewed as a cold case. A DNA profile from the semen sample discovered at the scene of the crime was able to be retrieved and was placed on the National DNA Database for a comparison, but there was no hit. It was again reviewed for matches in both 1997 and 1998, but again with no results. In both of these latter reviews, a mass screening of suspects from the original investigation was undertaken, along with renewed Crime Stoppers appeals but these again drew a blank. By 2005, the DNA profile was able to be upgraded yet again due to advances further in technology, and some familial DNA screening was undertaken both in 2005 and again in 2009, but a match still frustratingly remained undetected. By the 40th anniversary of Susan's murder in 2016, a new cold case team was examining the crime, led by Detective Chief Inspector Julie McKay of Avon and Somerset Police, who said, The passage of time since a murder is no longer an obstacle in securing justice for these victims. The technology used in DNA forensics has come a long way since Susan was murdered, and we now have a full DNA profile of the man who sexually abused and murdered her. I am convinced that someone out there has information on what happened that August night in 1976. I would appeal directly to them, or the killer himself, to come forward now 
and bring an end to the 40 years of heartache Susan's family and friends have had to endure. So it's known that Susan's killer was a male working alone. It's unlikely to have been his first or last crime. So many points about this crime suggest someone who's offended before. Again, it's a level of crime that's built up to. An offender does not set out to commit a brutal sex murder, commit it and manage to escape detection for more than 40 years if it's his first offence. He's likely to have a background as a housebreaker. He affected entry without being seen or heard. He came prepared to commit a crime and showed some level of forensic awareness. He wore gloves and did not leave any prints, even after leaving the gloves at the scene. He was prepared to and did use extreme violence and he came armed with that truncheon. So I'd expect the offender to have come to the attention of police before for violent offences. No one was witnessed fleeing the scene, so a physical description of the killer is unavailable, and indeed would be unreliable now after such a passage of time. It's possible that the offender had killed before, as there is a very similar murder that occurred in Nottingham just three weeks before Susan's, and this case will be covered on the show in a future episode. And it is possible that the offender killed again after Susan's murder, though police have never officially linked any other unsolved crimes to the killing. It is at the least very unlikely that the offender will have ceased offending after this. There was nothing found to suggest that Susan was deliberately targeted as a victim. Indeed, police have long favoured the theory that this was a petty housebreaker who took advantage of an open window that was visible from the pavement and attacked Susan in an opportunistic crime. It was the middle of a heatwave, I mean, how many windows would have been open? He came to rob, but took the opportunity to rape instead. Detective Chief Superintendent John Robinson said at the time in 1976, My favourite theory is perhaps we've got a petty housebreaker. There's evidence that entry was affected through that window, and there is evidence of ransacking in her bedroom. Anyone going through the bedroom door would think that he was in the lounge because from the doorway he would have just seen a three-piece suite. He could not have been blamed for thinking that the room was unoccupied, when if Mrs Donoghue woke up, probably her first reaction was that it was her boyfriend. The intruder was a pretty cool customer because after he'd hit her, he sexually assaulted her. So did Susan disturb a burglar who brutally attacked her and then sexual lust took over? Due to the passage of time since Susan's murder, there exists the very real possibility that the offender himself is now dead. Sadly, this does seem likely. He certainly hasn't been arrested for any crimes since the inception of the National DNA Database, and offenders of this magnitude will more than likely have offended again, and it's in the nature. But of course, this may not be the case. He may today be infirm and in hospital, or he may now live abroad if he's still alive. But detectives do today have the crucial evidence of his full DNA profile, and although familial DNA searches have been to date unsuccessful, the cold case team led by Detective Chief Inspector McKay are fully committed and will not give up on finding the identity of Susan's killer. There exists the very real possibility that a match may be entered upon the National DNA Database tomorrow or perhaps the day after, and he'll be found when the DNA profile is next reviewed. It may ultimately prove too late to bring Susan's killer to justice for his crime, but if his identity is known, then perhaps Susan's family can get some level of closure after so many years. It still unsurprisingly weighs very heavily upon them. 
Susan was brutally murdered. They thought maybe it was someone in the hospital where she worked, but they never got anybody. Like thousands of other people, even in our own country here, I've never given up hope. But years and years have passed and they didn't get anyone, and you wonder if the person they were looking for has passed away themselves. They've made great strides in technology, so maybe they will get somebody. That is about all I can hope for. It would help bring some closure to me. Those are the words of Seamus McGeary, who's Susan's brother. Anyone with information concerning Susan's murder should call 101 and ask for Operation Radar, or information can also be left anonymously through Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 111. It's 18 months later now, and only 18 miles away is the quiet suburb of the Widcombe Hill district of Bath in England. 52-year-old Beryl Culverwell lived with her husband Anthony, 57, in their comfortable detached house, Woodholm, on Widcombe Hill. Anthony was a successful stockbroker, working from offices in St Nicholas Street in Bristol, whilst Beryl busied herself as a charity worker and trustee, working for a long-established voluntary organisation named the Bath Maternity Society. This organisation was established in 1886 and its goal is giving assistance to young married and unmarried mothers who find themselves in financial difficulty. Beryl's role involved her visiting young mothers in hospital or at their homes, attempting to help in any way that she could, be that recommending financial help from the society in deserving cases, or simply just as much as offering emotional support and a bit of a shoulder to cry on, which we all undoubtedly need at some point in our lives, don't we? Beryl also volunteered elsewhere in her busy life, working at the local community centre in Widcombe Hill where she helped out with events, and ferrying senior citizens to and from the community centre. She was highly regarded in her work and volunteering, and was much loved and liked by all. Her entire family circle was a happy and close one. Beryl and Anthony had celebrated their silver wedding anniversary in 1978, and their quarter century together had produced two sons and a daughter, who were now young adults themselves. Friday the 13th of January 1978 was a bitterly cold evening, and Anthony arrived home from work just after 6pm that evening to find Woodholm in darkness, although Beryl's Renault car was parked in its usual spot on the drive. Although it was unusual for the house to be in darkness at this time, it wasn't uncommon. Sometimes throughout the course of her work with the society, Beryl would visit a young mother who lived within walking distance of the Culverwell house, and being a caring person, Beryl would often stay and comfort the young mother if they were upset and anxious at all, which was a common occurrence in that line of supporting, so perhaps Beryl was still out at such an appointment. But whilst Anthony was initially unconcerned when entering the house and calling out for Beryl, but getting no reply, it was when he took stock of the kitchen that he began to become uneasy. There was food shopping strewn across the kitchen table, perishables that should have been put away immediately in the fridge, such as bacon and chicken. Beryl's purse lay on the table, next to a half-full glass of ginger wine, and something had been left burning in the oven. Anthony turned the oven off and found it to be a blackened, burned pastry. It had been on for hours. By now extremely concerned, Anthony searched for any messages Beryl may have left for him saying where she'd gone, and he checked room by room throughout the house. Perhaps Beryl had taken ill and collapsed somewhere, or had had an accident. 
A search of the rooms inside the house proved fruitless, and the only possible place left to look was in the large garage, which was reached by a door through the downstairs utility room. This door was, however, locked from the house side, so Anthony thought it was unlikely that Beryl was in there, but he decided to check anyway, and in doing so was to make a discovery that would shatter the lives of himself and his children. Turning on the light in the garage, Anthony immediately saw Beryl lying on the garage floor in a large pool of blood. He rushed over to try and gain a response from her, but Beryl was sadly dead, having bled heavily from massive and severe head and body wounds. Nearby to the body, Anthony noticed one of the family kitchen bread knives lay discarded, heavily bloodstained, and Beryl's sheepskin coat also lay nearby. A shocked and distraught Anthony immediately summoned the emergency services, and when they arrived, it was quickly confirmed that Beryl had been savagely clubbed several times across the head, and then stabbed in a maniacal attack with a knife taken from her own kitchen. Examining the scene and trying to piece together the likely events of the day, it appeared that upon getting home after going shopping, Beryl had poured herself a glass of ginger wine and was about to make herself some lunch. It was known that she had a 2pm appointment that afternoon with a young local mother, and investigation revealed that she failed to keep this appointment. Beryl was normally meticulous about timekeeping, and would have been there earlier if anything, so was Beryl dead by that time? Also at the scene were a pair of secateurs that had been taken from the garage and used to cut the telephone wires in the house, then had been left abandoned in the hall carpet. But aside from this out-of-place object, there was no sign of any violent struggle in the house itself. There was no bloodstain in apparent, and nothing had been kicked or knocked over in a struggle. It was apparent that Beryl had been killed where she was found. Had she disturbed an intruder and fled to the garage, or had an intruder broken in and forced her there, then killed her? And why? Beryl's body was taken away from the scene for a post-mortem examination, whilst the murder investigation team, headed by Detective Superintendent John Robinson, began the inquiry. From the onset, police were plagued with questions at every turn. It didn't seem to be a sex crime. There was no sign or reports of Beryl having been sexually assaulted, nor of any of her clothing having been interfered with. But nor did the motive appear to be robbery. Not only did nothing appear to be missing from the house, but there were also no signs of any ransacking, and Beryl had money found on both her person and in her purse, which was found on the kitchen table. No unexplained fingerprints or forensic evidence left by the killer or killers were found in the house, and apart from the secateurs left in the hallway and the kitchen knife in the garage, nothing else seemed out of place in the main house, nor had anybody in the vicinity heard any screams or sounds of a struggle. House-to-house -house inquiries in Bath, concentrated within the Widcombe Hill area, got underway. Roadblocks were also set up, and passing motorists questioned as to whether they'd seen anything or anyone suspicious on the day of the murder. And an appeal was made to local guesthouse proprietors asking for information about any sudden arrival or departure, in case this person may have been the killer. Known local criminals were looked at and questioned. A mass search of the surrounding areas was undertaken, and hundreds of statements were taken from people in the local area. 
a detailed look at Beryl and her family members' lives, their friends and work acquaintances is also undertaken in an attempt to establish a possible motive or establish a suspect. By Monday the 16th of January 1978, the inquest into Beryl's death had been opened and adjourned for further investigation, and full details of the post-mortem were revealed. The pathologist had discovered at least five separate blows to Beryl's skull that had been caused by a heavy blunt instrument, and 21 separate stab wounds to Beryl's body inflicted with her own kitchen knife. Cause of death was concluded as being shock and loss of blood as a direct result of these wounds. The estimated time of death had been between four and five hours before the body was discovered, which tended to support the police theory that Beryl had been attacked while she was preparing her lunch. But police were still unable to pinpoint a clear motive. A thorough examination of Beryl's life revealed no secret lovers, no one who was known to dislike her, or nobody that had fallen out with her in any way. She was loved or liked by all who knew her, and wasn't involved in anything illicit or unlawful. Nothing was found in the lives of any of her family either that pointed towards a clear motive for someone wanting to inflict harm or suffering upon the Culverwells. Police had managed to establish a few lines of inquiry at the time of the massive 1978 investigation, but none were to provide any advancement in the search for Beryl's killer. There were several crucial sightings of a vehicle that police wished to eliminate from the inquiry, a yellow Ford Cortina Mark III that had been sighted parked outside Woodholm at about 2pm on the afternoon of the murder. More crucially, the same car containing two men had also been seen turning out of the driveway of Woodholm at about 2.45pm. The witness was certain about the time because the car had shot out of the driveway at considerable speed, driving erratically and almost hitting another car as it sped off. Police staged a reconstruction using a similar car in an attempt for further potential witnesses to come forward, but despite this, the vehicle was never traced and nor was a description of the driver or passenger ever established. The weekend following the murder, police believed that they'd found a crucial clue with the discovery half a mile from the Culverwell home of a bloodstained man's handkerchief. The location where it was found led police to consider the possibility that it had been dropped by Beryl's killer when he was fleeing from the rear of the house and across fields before heading into Bath itself. An appeal was made to dry cleaners within the area as it was believed that Beryl's killer would have been heavily bloodstained and police asked for reports of bloodstained clothing being brought in for cleaning. But before a week had passed, this lead had been eliminated from the inquiry. A reliable witness was found that had seen a man with a nosebleed throw the handkerchief away some days before Beryl's murder. Although this was a forensic clue that led nowhere, it is reported that detectives did have another clue, one given the origin of the weapon used to club Beryl. It was the butt of a shotgun. Parts of the butt were found in the pools of blood in which Beryl's body lay and enough could be gleaned from piecing fragments together to ascertain that the weapon was an old-style model with a Rogers side-lock action. Not quite sure what that is, but... A line of inquiry with local gun dealers as to anybody who had approached them asking for repairs to be made to such a gun, however, proved fruitless. 
several anonymous telephone calls to police by a person claiming to have found such a weapon in some remote hills in the Bath area were also unable to be traced. The inquiry eventually was wound down as one line of inquiry petered out after another, and although it wasn't closed, it remained officially active with regular reviews for many years, which is just a polite way of saying a cold case really, isn't it? In January 2003, on the 25th anniversary of Beryl's murder, a reappeal was made, however, and the case featured as an appeal on Crime Watch UK. However, it didn't generate much new information, perhaps no more than rekindling local interest in the crime. By this time, Beryl's children had families of their own, and her husband Anthony had sadly passed away, never knowing who was responsible for the murder of his beloved wife. Now this is a savage crime and one that there is relatively little information readily available to research about. I did manage to source a book entitled Bristol and Bath Who Done It by author David Kid Hewitt and it covers Beryl's murder in a chapter of it and in using this text for reference to help create this episode I've remained faithful to the author's findings. But other sources contain a piece of important information that is not featured within this recount and I believe it's worth mentioning here because it may affect any profile of Beryl's killer. A freedom of information request available online concerning undetected homicides in the Avon and Somerset area from 1946 onwards details Beryl's murder. It contains the following short statement. 13th of January 1978 Beryl Culverwell, 52 years, white, North European, Woodholm, Widcombe Hill, Bath. Mrs. Culverwell was found murdered in the garage of her home. She died from stab wounds and severe head injuries. Her body had been tied with twine, undetected, active with regular reviews. Now this is the only reference available during research to Beryl having been found bound with twine. So what then's the likely profile of Beryl's killer? Firstly, it must be remembered that so much concern in this case remains unknown and what little information there is only serves to raise more questions than provide answers. There's no discernible suspect or suspects and the exact motive remains unclear. It should also be emphasised again, as with the other cases featured in the episode, that I in no way offer the following as definitive. It's pure hypothesis based upon the available information. So no physical description exists of a suspect in the murder, and due to the large passage of time since the murder, any physical description would be useless anyway now. I do believe that the house was deliberately targeted, and that there was more than one killer. If you look on Google Maps, and I always do at all of the places I either read or hear about in cases, then you'll see that the houses on Widcombe Hill appear large and tend to be detached and would offer attractive targets for burglary, as they suggest affluence and therefore rich pickings. Burglars also tend to operate in pairs, and this is not your classic striped jumper, glass cutter, masked burglar as depicted so often in film and TV. A likely scenario is that Beryl arrived home after shopping that morning and began to prepare lunch for herself. That explains the food in the oven, and the timing can be near definitively confirmed because the ever-punctual and reliable Beryl failed to keep her appointment at 2pm. It is possible then that her killer, or killers because evidence suggests that this was the work of more than one offender, 
knocked on either the front or back door and burst in when it was answered, or crept in and surprised Beryl in the kitchen at gunpoint. She may or may not have been tied up. If she was tied up, then this would suggest more than one offender, and she was taken to the garage. Or perhaps she was threatened at gunpoint by one offender and marched to the garage to find something to restrain her with, perhaps strong twine that you'd need a knife to cut. Two offenders would also account for the telephone lines being cut. One does this while the other one guards the victim. It must have been done before Beryl was killed. What would be the point of doing so after such a brutal murder? And why were the telephone lines cut anyway? To allow ample time for the offender to escape or to stop Beryl from contacting help? This seems the only likely reasons to do this. But this also serves then to suggest that Beryl's murder was unplanned, because if the intention is to not leave someone alive in the house, there serves no purpose in cutting the phone lines, does there? It is possible that Beryl tried to flee to the sanctuary of the garage, where she could have locked herself in. But then why not scream or try to leave the house, or to alert neighbours? Was she then caught and clubbed into unconsciousness? But then why the need to commit such a ferocious attack? Or did she try to escape from the garage, was clubbed into unconsciousness, and then the offender or offenders panicked, stabbed and battered her repeatedly, then fled before anything could be taken? Or did bloodlust take over, or did she even recognise her killer and said so, causing her death to be a necessity? Do you see what I mean about raising more questions than answers? The witness statements detail in the yellow Ford Cortina that contained two men leaving the scene, driving very fast and very erratically, all support the scenario of it being a bungled robbery by two perpetrators that led to an unplanned murder. This is also supported by the use of a knife from Beryl's own kitchen to stab her with, and the fact that it was left there at the scene. This seems unplanned and disorganised. If it was a planned killing... The killer would likely have taken away a murder weapon with them, not left it at the scene. They would also have left the house quietly without drawing attention to themselves. But what if the killer had gone to the house with the deliberate intention of killing Beryl? As of course, this is also a possible scenario. And it could also be that Beryl was killed by someone that she knew. There are reasons to believe that she or the Culverwells were known to a killer or killers at least. I mean, consider that Beryl's car was on the driveway. Would an offender really choose a, at random a house, however affluent and remote it appeared, if a car was visible in the driveway and it appeared that someone was at home in the middle of the day? Unlikely. Unless you were familiar with the family and you recognised which was Beryl's car and which was Anthony's. This suggests either someone who'd watched the house for a considerable period of time and had learned the family routines, or someone who knew Beryl. If it was someone she knew, this would also support the reason for the lack of signs of forced entry and the lack of any screams. Beryl may have admitted her killer willingly to the house, not suspecting that she had any reason to fear. If this was the case and her killer was someone that she knew, then who was it? Beryl's life and the lives of her family were scrutinised in an attempt to identify a suspect or a motive. Nothing no one stood out. Everyone who knew the Culverwell family was spoken to and looked at as potential suspects, friends, neighbours, families, work colleagues, all were eliminated from the investigation. There was no obvious motive to be found, 
no affairs, no dodgy dealings, no long-running feud, or even no crossed words with anyone were found. Was it someone that she'd met in the course of her volunteering, perhaps the estranged partner of one of the young mothers that she'd counselled, who had taken a grudge against someone they believed had helped their partner to get free from their control? Had this person followed Beryl and gone to her home to confront her that fateful day? So possible motives for the murder then. Sex, robbery or personal. It's unlikely to be a sex crime. There was no reported rape or indecent assault and Beryl was found fully clothed. A sex attacker would have left the victim in a state of at least some undress and would also have committed the sex attack in a more comfortable location rather than a garage. Whilst there's ample precedent of a sex attacker killing the victim, of course, the level of violence is unusual. Strangulation would be more likely a method, and of course, there would be clear evidence of at least an attempted sexual assault. I believe that the investigation was that thorough that a personal motive would have been identified and that if someone did have a grudge against Beryl, then this would have come to attention during the initial investigation. It's highly unlikely that if a person feels strongly enough about an individual to not only want to, but to actually set out to murder them so brutally, it's unlikely that it remains kept entirely to themselves, and no one else has even a slight inkling about this. So I believe the initial motive here was robbery. Beryl was a trustee of the maternity society. Did someone believe that there may be large amounts of cash readily available to her? But this attempted robbery graduated to an unplanned murder when Beryl attempted to escape or she fought back. And perhaps the killers left in a panic, all thoughts of robbery abandoned. It does not explain the savagery of the crime, however. So was it bloodlust or hatred? It's likely that the killer or killers of Beryl Culverwell had offended before the murder but were at the younger end of the offender scale, no older than early to mid-twenties. If it was a shotgun that was used to brutally club Beryl, it suggests to me a younger, less mature offender. An experienced burglar does not take a shotgun to burgle a house, but a younger, less experienced offender may do so, perhaps out of bravado or to fulfil some macho fantasy. I also believe it very likely that the killers have committed other crimes following this killing. It's too savage a crime and too much forensic awareness was shown at the scene for this to be a one-off first-timer, although this may have been the offender's first murder. There's likely to be a history of violence in the offender's past and possibly housebreaking or theft. Offenders have to start somewhere and this killer was in the files. I do believe it most likely that there was also more than one killer. As I said before, this is supported by the sighting of a vehicle containing two men driving away. Two people would also possibly explain the different methods of murder used. It suggests two persons attacking at once, perhaps in a rage, or perhaps one forcing the other to do so to attain dual culpability, or it may even be one showing off to the other. The killers would certainly have been familiar with the area of Widcombe Hill, perhaps living in the local area, or perhaps working there, or having been schooled there. Of course, after so many years that have now passed since Beryl's murder, and indeed all of the cases featured in this episode, the possibility exists that the offender or offenders are now dead themselves. If they are still alive, they will be middle-aged to elderly themselves now. They may have moved away from the area, or they may be in prison, 
hospital, nursing home, or they may still live close by, hoping that fortune smiles upon them and that they never face justice for their crimes. They've gotten away with murder for more than 40 years now. The family of Beryl Culverwell deserve that good fortune and justice more than her killers do. So there we have it, three savage and tragic unsolved murders that the killer or killers are long overdue in coming to justice. Three people murdered in what should be their sanctuary, their own homes. There are undoubtedly still family members of Violet, Susan and Beryl who long for answers. And as we said at the start, it's important that these poor people are never forgotten and efforts are made to keep their cases in the public eye. It really can't make a difference. I can never help but think that someone somewhere may have long held a secret out of guilt, fear or misplaced loyalty about the identity of the killer in each of these cases and the key to identifying those responsible is just a simple conversation away. Perhaps sometime soon the conscience will get the better of them and they'll come forward. We can but hope. Links to newspaper articles and texts that I've used to research in creating the episode can be found within the show notes and the case studies can all be found individually on the True Crime Enthusiast WordPress blog also. If anyone does have information concerning any of the cases featured, it can be passed anonymously if wished to police using either Telephone 101 or through Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 111. Hopefully you guys have found this an informative episode. There will be another episode featuring a trilogy of unsolved cases coming up later on in the latter half of the series. Now I know some people prefer a case covered that has a resolution and that's what we usually do here on the show isn't it? But I did start the blog initially by focusing upon unsolved cases. There are tragically so many of them and these people are no less important than the Madeleine McCanns of this world so they deserve the attention. For this trilogy of cases, the discussion thread is now up in the Facebook group and pictures concerning the case are available in the blog posts on the WordPress site. Or to discuss, the usual social media outlets are all still good also. I'd love to hear your theories about each case. I do enjoy a debate. I just ask you all to spare a thought out of your day after hearing this for Violet and Susan and Beryl and let's hope that their killers each face justice one day. If you have found it interesting and you're all caught up with the show to date, and if you aren't already one of course, then there are now five bonus extra episodes available for a very reasonable contribution as a Patreon supporter of the show, the link to which is in the show notes as ever. Thank you so much for joining me all this week. I'm Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, and I shall catch you all very soon with another episode. Take care guys, be safe, and goodbye for now.